Hello. Hey, how's that? Oh, oh that's man, so that much good, better. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> we are on. That's great. Welcome to the Publisher Book Podcast, where we speak with authors from around the world to find out how they transform their dream into a published reality. Here's your host, Adam Ashton. Just got off the Skype call with Mia Friedman, who's launched her new book, her fourth book, Work, Strife, Balance. If you're in Australia, I'm sure that name is familiar to you. Mia Friedman is a writer, broadcaster, author, columnist, podcaster. She was the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan. She used to be a TV executive at Channel 9. Basically, she founded the women's media company, uh, Mamma Mia, and also the Mamma Mia Podcast Network, which is the largest women's podcast network in the world. We're talking at the the media company, 100-plus employees, five global offices, uh, monthly audience in the millions, uh, basically massive, <laughs> basically really awesome. I must admit that I thought uh, most of this stuff was just for women, so I'd never read or been too engaged in any of the Mamma Mia stuff, but maybe from some subtle and some, some not-so-subtle suggestions from uh, important women in my life, I started gradually opening my eyes and I... I read a new book, Work Strife Balance, and whilst it wasn't all uh, applicable because I'm never going to get pregnant, I thought the book was really, really good, really important, a lot of lessons, uh, male or female, so definitely worth the read. And uh, man, me is actually, me is awesome, so definitely worth a listen. Uh, and my uh, lovely producer, Kim Price, co-hosted with this one, uh, and I believe me is her absolute idol, and she, she has loved following her career, and man, we got a lot out of it, I hope you do too. I don't think I have anything else to say. I'm still uh, still buzzing. <laughs> really enjoyed that conversation. Really enjoyed it. How's the, uh, the book tour going? What does that look like for you in the last couple of weeks? Oh, it's been... I reckon yesterday I slept 20 out of 24 hours. <laughs> I was just... I had a great time on the tour, and I have, and I continue to do it. I'm going to Canberra in a few hours, but... Um, it was just, I think all the adrenaline just subsided yesterday and I just passed out. I couldn't sleep enough. But it's been really good. I, I made a decision at the start of this to really enjoy it and not drag my feet through it because all those months of sitting alone and, and writing the book and wanting it to be finished and wanting it to be out there, this is the point I wanted to get to, you know. I wanted to get to the point where people were looking at it and engaging with the ideas in it and um, and that I was reaching people. So, yeah, I've, I've just loved it. Yeah, fantastic. Well, can you tell us uh, a, a quick synopsis of, of your new book, Work, Strife, Balance? Sure. I, I guess it's the book that, that I wish I could have read in my, in my 20s and 30s and 40s. It's about the fact that work-life balance is, well, frankly, bullshit and it's mm-hmm. something that <laughs> everyone, nobody can attain, but we've all – keep striving and struggling and feeling like we can achieve this mythical state. And because we invariably can't, I don't know if men feel like this, but women end up feeling like they're failing a whole lot of the time because we don't have this work-life balance. And the things that throw you off balance and that that sort of stand in the way of you having work-life balance are often things that you can't control. So it might be 
having a baby, having a marriage breakdown, having mental health challenges, having a parent that needs you to help with, you know, their care or good things as well, like getting a promotion or having a, a, a work trip or having business um, starting a business, all of those things are the enemies and the kryptonite of balance. And yet they're the stuff of life. Like if you didn't have any of those things, I don't know, you'd probably be living in a bubble somewhere on or on a desert island or alone in a basement. Yeah, for <laughs> so, sure. So I feel like um, it, it's just important to, to embrace all those things and, and be honest about the toll that they take, um, but, but also the, the things you can learn from them. Yeah, nice. The, the strife uh, section of the book was the the longest. Was that a, a conscious decision, or was that just sort of that's that's life? It's mostly strife. That's life. That's <laughs> life, isn't it? So um, it's it's the stuff that you don't that you can't necessarily plan for, or that you don't expect, or that you're not going to see on people's pretty Instagram feeds and their you know humble brag Facebook posts. <laughs> but it's stuff that we all go through, and I was very very conscious that. Um, as a woman who is in the public eye and whose whose highlight reel can look pretty glossy from the outside, I, I if anyone was going to compare themselves to me, I, I wanted them to be comparing themselves to the full picture, not just mm. some highly curated, photoshopped Instagram fakery. Um, mm. Because, yeah, I put, put photos out there of my outfits and people hear about the success of, of Mama Mia and I've built a, a media company with my husband and all of those things. But that's only one part of my story. Like anyone, I've I've had and continue to have a whole whole heap of challenges. And I wanted to be honest about those challenges and, and I guess what I've learned from them. So it's not just, you know, me self-indulgently talking about all the things that have happened to me in my life but it's about the things I've I've actually learned and the mm. the lessons that haven't just been applicable for me but that I think can probably be applicable for other women as well mm, absolutely and in that chapter your son's written a little bonus chapter so what yeah. was it what was it like reading that because he it's been publicized as quite a emotional recollection of your parenting skills yeah, it was. It, is. it was really hard at first, you know. It was really, well, it was not just the first time. Every time I read it, it kind of gets me by the heart and punches me in the feelings because it's amazing and he's a, a fantastic man and I, I you know, am, am in, just so proud of him and he's he's a very good friend of mine as well as my son. But it, it's hard to read about the things that you've done that didn't go so well and the things that had a real impact. And they're often the things that you don't expect. Like, you know, for us, there were a couple of times when I broke his trust by just things that I didn't even think were private or that mm. didn't even seem to be mm. important. And that I mentioned them not even on the internet, but maybe, you know, um, in front of my other members of our family and, and you know, or, or told a funny story and, and included something in it that he felt was private Things like that where, um, you know, perhaps I didn't realise at the time how upsetting they were because, I mean, we're all doing our best and, of course, you're going to get things wrong. But, you know, I don't <laughs> – it, it's pretty interesting when, you, when your kid's old enough to give you a performance review and then share it with the world. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I'm going to – I'm a, a, uh, a male – was I meant to read this you book? Are. Am I meant yeah. to uh, be listening to No Filter and things like that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, No Filter is not a, not a women's podcast. It's just an interview podcast with people who've got interesting stories. But um, the book, yeah, also is. I mean, you know, I've worked in women's media my whole life and the smartest men I know um, look at women's media to get a better understanding of women. Um, they really do. So, you know, mm. my son to my husband, when I was editing Cosmo, 25% of readers were, were guys. I mean, even way back oh, to Dolly Doctor, a, which you guys, I know, wow. which you guys might not remember Dolly Doctor, but. No, I love <laughs> Dolly Doctor. That was yeah. my life. <laughs> Boys used to read Dolly Doctor because before internet porn, where else could they find out about it? <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, so sure. true. No, I really enjoyed the book. And I, there was um, definitely some. Uh, a lot of takeaways that I uh, I got from the book. Uh, you, being, I guess, a, a writer and in the media for 25 years, does that make, and it's your fourth book, does that make writing a book easier for you? No, this was the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. <laughs> so my first <laughs> book was a collection of my columns from the newspaper. My second book I wrote from scratch. It was like a memoir and it was about, it was kind of a way for me to process my time in magazines and sort of draw a line under that and also losing a baby halfway through a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of needed to to process those things by writing them by writing them. And then my third book was also a collection of columns. So this is different to all of those because I didn't write it this sounds it sounds a bit kumbaya, but I didn't write this one for me. This was about trying to use my experience to be helpful to other women. Um, either who've been through the similar things to, to what I have or who will one day go through those things and and for men as well to get that better understanding. Mm. So this to me was a real stretch. It's not my usual sort of just first person. There's a lot of personal stuff in there but it's not just, you know, this happened to me and then this happened to me and here's a funny story and here's a mm. sad story. It really um, – it's the book my husband's been convincing me to write for a few years now where he's like, come on, you got to give it – you got to share some of your – knowledge and some of the things that you've learned and I was always like oh no one wants to hear from me and who am I to give advice and then I was just like there are some big numbers this year it's like I've been working in the media for 25 years I've been a parent for 20 years Mama Mia is 10 years old Mm. um so you know there's there's I feel like I've earned my right to sort of say yeah here's what I've learned instead of Mm. the absolutely brag gratitude platitude (laughs) so often yeah spot on absolutely and in in your um i guess at mama me you've got a lot of interns and a lot of young aspiring uh you know fresh graduates who are looking to make it big in the in the media industry how can how can you know 16 to 25 year olds sort of stand out how can they uh set themselves apart if they if that's the journey they want to go on such a great question um well, I think it's never been so easy to stand out. You look at, mm. at um, my, my podcast co-host on Mamma Mia Out Loud, Jessie Stevens and her twin sister, Claire. Um, they are 26. They'd never worked full-time in the media before. But um, about 18 months ago, around Christmas time, I was just on Facebook and one of my Facebook friends posted a really funny recap of The Biggest Loser <laughs> for from a website called The New Matilda. I don't even know if it's still around now. But, um, you know, it's a pretty niche, small site. And it just happened that I was on Facebook at that moment and I read this post and I thought, firstly, I was intrigued by the double byline because that's pretty unusual. They wrote it together. And Mm -hmm. then so I did a bit of Facebook stalking and I looked them up and I reached out to them and I said, hey, you know, I I read your, your stuff. I've had a look at some of your other stuff. 
tell me about yourselves. And through that and then through them interning for a little while and then freelancing for us a little bit, they're both now, you know, senior members of our staff Mm -hmm. and on podcasts and doing all kinds of things. Um, You know, Claire's a weekend editor. They both create content. Jesse co-hosts a podcast and they're very much on their way. So that was just... I don't even know if they were being paid to do those recaps for that little little website, but that's an example of how it used to be that you have to go had to go through the sort of the cadet system in newspapers, and you had to, you know, climb mm. the ladder in in a very narrow way. But now, you know, they grew up in in the western suburbs. They had no contacts. They didn't know anyone who worked in the media, um, and you can do that if you're talented. You can cut through with a post or a piece or a Facebook update that goes viral. Mm. Um, and, and that didn't even go viral, but it just happened that because people share things, there are no barriers to getting your content shared and noticed. Mm. Nice. Okay. So that's uh, how did uh, 25 years ago, how did you stand out from the crowd? Because you rose up very high, very quickly at a very young age, I'd say. Yeah, I um I wrote a very sort of unoriginal letter to Lisa Wilkinson um asking if she would if I could, you know, just telling her that I loved Cleo, which was the magazine she edited and before that she edited Dolly and of course having been an editor myself now you get a lot of those letters every day, but she was kind enough to to sort of meet with me very briefly and offer me a couple of weeks of work experience and that was my opportunity, but the rest was up to me. And so I knew straight away that I needed, because a lot of people come and go from work experience, and I've, there, you mm. know, there are hundreds of people I've seen over, over my career. But you do have an opportunity to get noticed, and, um, you know, so I knew that I had to make a Mia-shaped hole in that time. And mm. I was very naive about how magazines work. I just thought if Lisa liked me, she could hire me. I didn't know about budgets and headcounts and all those kinds of things, but. You know, after those two weeks, I asked if I could keep coming back a day a week or a couple of days a week, and I worked other jobs to support myself, and I was living at home. So it was a great opportunity for me to come in two days and then three days, and I just kept coming in days when I wasn't even expected. And in the end, an entry-level position came up, and I applied for it, and um, and I got it. But that was after many months of of working for free and, and showing her and the other um, staff members that I was hardworking, mm-hmm. that I was precious, that I'd do anything that was asked, that hopefully I had a little bit of, you know, flair that, that could be moulded and shaped and taught. And that's why I write in the book that um, working for free it can be an invaluable stepping stone in your career and you should never um, dismiss it. I think this idea of, and I'm sure some people are exploited being work for, working for free, but only you can make that decision. Don't let someone else make it for you. If you mm-hmm. think that there's an even exchange, um, then by all means, go for it. Nice. I like that uh, you had a very simple decision-making matrix to decide if you should intern or not. Uh, was Do you want to intern? Yes, then intern. Uh, <laughs> if no, then don't. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, it drives me crazy, the concern trolls on Twitter in particular, who are outraged at the idea of internships. And we work closely with the um, the universities and the journalism courses, and they say they are so grateful to us because it's a crucial part of the experience of, of journalism. And mm. sometimes, we, and, and not just in my industry, 
you don't know what it's like until you go in there. So why would someone give you a job when you've got no experience? And and it might not even be the right job for you. And and I think interning can be a fantastic way of mm. of working that out. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we've seen in recent times how sort of the field of journalism and writing is diminishing with job cuts and things like that. So what do you think it takes for nowadays for a person to turn a passion into their career? Yeah, you're right. So I write about in the book, um, you know, that, that, that job, hobby, career and vocation are separate things mm-hmm. and sometimes they, they, um, they overlap but they don't always. So mm-hmm. your passion might be baking but that doesn't mean you should open a, a cupcake shop necessarily. Um, just be careful. Like, like don't think that everything that is your passion should become your job or should mm-hmm. become your career. If you're – for some people it will and um, I'm one of those people but that doesn't mean just because you have a passion and it doesn't earn you money that it's any less valid as your passion mm. or as your dream or as even as your vocation or hobby. Um, a job, though, is really important. I'm really big on side hustle, having a side hustle. So it always makes me feel a bit nervous and slightly nauseous when someone says, look, I'm, I, I work in, in admin um, for an insurance company, but I'm really passionate about um, podcasting and I really mm. want to uh, you know, leave my job and start podcasting for real. And I'm like, well, don't leave your job by all means. Yeah. <laughs> but do not leave your job. Make it your side hustle. And if it if it um, goes well, and it might become, you know, it might be able to pay you an income at some stage. But don't put the pressure on it or on yourself of of your side hustle having to pay you money Mm. um having side hustles are really really important i think i think they're a really great thing to do i still have them to this day what what are some of your side hustles at the moment oh i've got a little side hustle i love i mean i love fashion and i love i love um clothes so there are different side hustles i've tried like i've tried um i've got a girlfriend who has a label called south of the border and we've done a few partnerships where we've um you know done little ranges together and then i've i've got a, another friend who owns a second-hand clothing business called acac and i resell a whole bunch of my clothes through her and so you know just little projects yeah. on the side but I'm not going to launch my own fashion label. That would be crazy. Mm-hmm. But this kind of <laughs> enables me to have this little side hustle. And sometimes you think things are going to be big or make money and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Um, but side hustles are, are, are really important. Mm. Yeah, I definitely, uh, I definitely agree with that. It's good to have something that, uh, that you really enjoy doing yeah. without having that pressure of being your, your sole source of income. Exactly. When did you, um, when did you realize you're a good writer? Or has it always been the case or did you ever doubt yourself and how did you develop those writing skills? Well, I've constantly doubted myself. I think every good writer does. I don't know any good writer who doesn't doubt themselves. Um, Let me think. Um, I've always written to process my feelings. So even when I was a little kid, instead of having shouting arguments with my parents, I would write them notes Mm -hmm. explaining how (laughs) aggrieved I was. (laughs) (laughs) that had happened in the house or some punishment that had been meted out or <laughs> some parent that I felt didn't understand me. So I'd, I'd, I'd always write these notes to them. So from an early age, writing was my medium and I loved – I went to um, an opportunity class uh, in years five and six where we got to do a lot of creative writing and I really loved that and then I really loved magazines so I kind of 
thought, well, of course, who who doesn't want to do a job that they really love? And, you know, that, that was my first attempt to turn a hobby and a passion into a, into a job. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, I, so I wrote for quite a long time and then I got caught up with editing and you don't write very much when you're editing. But a few years into editing, a, a guy I knew who was a newspaper editor in Sydney tapped me on the shoulder and said, do you want to write a newspaper column? And I was like, really? Because I wrote a column. Once you edit, you don't write much anymore. You sort of, you, you oversee other people's creativity. But as you rise higher up in the ranks of journalism, you do less and less of what you love. And I think that's pretty much the same of every profession. You know, Mm. you want to be promoted and climb that ladder, but you often get far away from what you love doing. And for me, that was creating. And and at that time it was, it was writing that was my biggest passion. So I really loved doing that, that newspaper column. And I think it allowed me to be an editor for a long time, longer time than I would have, because I had that hands-on creative outlet still of writing and it kept my, kept my muscles fit my writing muscle Mm. um, in shape and then you know it wasn't until then I started Mamma Mia that I I started really exercising that muscle even more so instead of writing one column a week I was writing six six posts a day Mm. and there's nothing that makes you a better writer than just doing lots of it nothing makes you a better writer so everyone says how can I become a better writer start a blog blog on or write on Facebook every day just just write, 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 write. And that's what's, you know, I see it with my own son. You know, he once he started at Mamma Mia, he wrote this chapter for the book before he started writing at Mamma Mia. But at Mamma Mia, you know, you don't get a week to write something that's 3,000 words or mm. a month. You get, you know, an hour to yeah. write a post that's 100 words and, you know, you better get it done. Mm. So that just makes you better at it. Um, so that's that was writing. The, the, the revelation for me in the last year or two has been podcasting. I've just discovered that that's a medium that I'm completely in love with. And I, I've been podcasting a lot more and writing a lot less on Mamma Mia. And that's why this book was lovely because it enabled me to write in long form, which I haven't done for a long time. Mm, fantastic. Um, I've got a few thoughts. I don't know what the specific question is. It might come out. <laughs> but I guess you, you talked about uh, doing less of what you love, the higher you get up in that there's a a lot more other bigger picture things that you have to deal with. Um, And at the same time, uh, I want to, I guess, know about the the difference between technical skills versus the, I guess, playing the the games and the the corporate politics and things. But you came to the decision where you sort of stepped down, I guess, is the the bigger picture stuff. Is that right? And sort of focused on the, the content that you enjoyed. Yeah, I realized it was making me completely miserable. Um, that was sort of accelerated by the fact that I was at Channel 9 and in a job that was just awful and wasn't even really a job. But um, it had been a lot of years since I'd been in that senior management role in in media companies, first in magazines and then briefly in television. And I was still then only in my 30s and I just was like, oh, man, this is not fun. The politics is exhausting. (laughs) Nurturing other people's creativity is fine, but I've got. I want to be able to have a direct outlet between me and the world. You know, yeah. I really, I really wanted to to, to <coughs> be creative myself. So, um, but it's hard because we're taught to strive to go higher and higher, and of course, the money gets better the higher you go. Mm. But it can be a bit of a shock to realise that the work isn't as satisfying and. 
being in a in a senior kind of managerial role, as you'll know if you've ever watched The Office, whether you're <laughs> in a sexy, fun media company or, you know, a factory that makes hammers, it's kind of the same. It's a lot of meetings. It's a lot of strategy. And I found myself, as our business grew, particularly over the last few years, I found myself back there again in that managerial role. And I don't know... I was just so sick of it that I just didn't do it very well and it made me really miserable again. And so I had to make a conscious decision in our company to step back as well, mm. to take step away from, from management and to stay really plugged in to the creative side of the business. And I tell you what, management's better for me not being in it and, <laughs> the, create, and the business is better for, yeah. for me not being in it in terms of, of, of the creativity of Mamma Mia. So... Um, but but as we grew, it wasn't until the last couple of years that I've had the luxury of not being involved in management because, you know, when you're smaller, you have to do everything yourself. You can't, you don't, you know, we didn't have a managing director. We didn't have a head of editorial strategy. That all had to be me and in some parts of it, my husband. And now we've got, we're, we're able to employ people to do things um, so that we can focus on our on our strengths. Mm. Thanks for giving a really good answer to a really dodgy question. <laughs> it was a really good question. <laughs> Outstanding. Um, I guess the main thing I want to ask you, Mia, is over the past couple of years, you've really become an advocate for women and how they can, you know, be something in the world and do everything that everyone else can do. And you've also received quite a lot of negativity from that, from a whole range of people. And Mamma Mia has a bit of negativity attached to it sometimes. So how, I guess my question is, how do you continue to stand up for something when you're continually put down and receive negative comments for it? <laughs> I think that it's, it's really interesting. Um, I mean, everybody gets negativity for everything. I think if mm. you put up a, a Facebook post with a cute puppy or put something on Twitter, people would say, why do you hate kittens? <laughs> against kittens. So when you say there's there's negativity and backlash, I see positive. I mean, I hate to be you know sound like Mary Poppins, but I see positivity and strength, and the numbers speak for themselves. You know, we've got the biggest podcast network, women's podcast network in the world. Our traffic's never been higher. Our traffic, our audience is bigger than all our competitors combined, and that includes really big media companies. Mm. Um, and we're growing and growing and growing, and, and the book's been received really well. So there will always be critics, and, and I think that that doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. That just means that you're in the game. Mm. I think that anyone who's out there is in the game. Having said that, I'm really enjoying not being – I had to do some some press this week and I had to go on the drum on the ABC. And for a long time I used to be on all those shows, the drum, the project, mm. the Today Show, um, you know, Paul Murray Live, Sky News, all of those things giving my opinions about all kinds of things that I had no idea about because that's what those TV panel shows demand of you. Mm. Um, and it's deeply, deeply, deeply unsatisfying. And I, I never found it satisfying. Television is not my medium. I don't enjoy it. Um, and I always used to feel faintly embarrassed to be there and being asked about Syria or the budget or, you know, refugees. And, and I've got opinions on lots of things like anyone else. But mm. 
No one needs like the world. That that's not my core area of expertise. I, I'm really confident with what I know and what I've got to say and what I'm an authority on. And those shows where you have to come out with some fabulous little soundbite in 20 seconds about a deeply complex issue that you mm. are an expert on. That I just. Yeah, it, it's deeply unsettling and it's also deeply dangerous and that's what makes you polarising. So the times that I've got into all sorts of trouble on those shows are when I've been out of my depth, I've shot my mouth off about something I don't understand, mm-hmm. it's been taken the wrong way and that has created a huge backlash. Um, and so it, having to do the drum last week made me just realise, oh, my God, I don't miss that. I don't <laughs> miss having to be out there writing and speaking opinions on everything because it's really exhausting. It's mm. really exhausting. That that combative bang, 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 you know. Mm. And and there will always be people who are, are heavily invested in believing bad things about me or about Mamma Mia, but I'm not going to change their mind. I'm really not. So that that's about them. It's not about me. Mm. Fantastic. Well, Mia, thanks so much for squeezing us into your, your busy uh, book tour oh, schedule. Thank you, guys. <laughs> great. It was so great to you. Where, oh, can, uh, you. where can people grab your book? What uh, what podcast should they be listening to? What, what, what site should they check out? Um, they should. Come find me. I've got a Work Strife Balance Facebook page now as well as Mia Friedman. Facebook, I think, is always the easiest. Mm. So like me on Facebook. Um, like the Work Strife Balance page and you can find the book either at miafriedman.com or at bookstores or at, um, you know, the big W's of the world, wherever good books are sold. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Publisher Book Podcast. We hope you learned something along the way. For more interviews with authors from around the world, subscribe to the podcast or visit publisherbookpodcast.com.